open up Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read from verse 45 and then we'll pray. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And he, that is Jesus, was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that as we gather here together as a local church, we can gather and hear your very words. We can hear you speak to us. Lord, we just pray that you would open our eyes to understand and hear your word this morning as we read from your words and your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's try again. <laughs> well, I wanted to begin with uh, a question. And that question is, have you ever had a, a memorable lesson? A lesson that you know you will never forget. Now, I was thinking about that this week. And a lesson that clearly comes to my mind is when I was uh, still training uh, as a physiotherapist some 12 years ago. And I was doing a placement at a hospital down on the south coast. And I had a, a supervisor. And one of my first sessions with uh, this supervisor of mine, he sat me down and he said, look, Brendan, I'm happy for you to work quite independently in this hospital, but on one condition. You must always have done every skill, every uh, treatment, everything with me first before you can do it by yourself. That's my one condition. You must always have me first to show you what to do before you do it by yourself. Anyway, some time went past and the prac was going on and uh, I remember uh, one day, well, one of the things that uh, you know, frequently happens in a hospital is you get someone in a hoist, it's someone who can't be easily moved and you kind of you know, it lifts them up in the air and then places them, you know, back in bed or from bed into a chair or something like this. And, uh, you know, it's something I'd seen all the time. So some of the nurses really wanted to move a, a patient of ours, who was a stroke patient, from uh, his chair back into bed. And um, so they said, oh, can you, you know, 
help us to move this guy. And I was like, yeah, 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 no worries, let's do it. And um, so we got out the hoist and, you know, hook, hook him up. And I've got this guy lifted up in the middle of the air when in walks my prac supervisor. And he is furious. In front of all the nurses and people around, he says, what do you think that you are doing? And I just froze. He said, didn't I say to you that I must always show you first what to do before you do it by yourself? And so what are you doing in this moment? Give me one good reason why I shouldn't fail you and send you home right now. And to be honest, I was afraid. I was uh, terrified that I would have to repeat this prac again and my year would take me, uh, my degree would take me one more year in addition to complete. A lesson that's memorable. A lesson I will, for the rest of my life, never forget. Well, today we're going to be examining a hugely important lesson. And it's a lesson that Jesus gave to his disciples. A lesson that I put to us this morning that if we grasp it, can change your life. And that lesson is, in fact, the lesson of the loaves. But the problem is that Jesus had already given this lesson. But his, his disciples had failed to understand it. And this week, he's out to give it again. He wants his disciples to learn this lesson. The lesson of the loaves. And that's the title for this morning's message, The Lesson of the Loaves. I've got two points. We're going to start by talking about uh, the passage before we move on to the two points. But really, the main point of this message is, in fact, the lesson of the loaves. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, what is that lesson? What is the lesson of the loaves? I think Dr. Paul Tripp puts it best. He summarizes it so neatly, I couldn't do any better, so we're going to use what he says, and uh, it's this. The lesson of the loaves is divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Well, let's begin by uh, reviewing the story, the story so far. Uh, Last week, uh, we saw, I think so helpfully, uh, how uh, the the disciples had been sent out. Jesus, back in the start of chapter 6, sends out his disciples. And um, in Chapter 6, later on, we see the disciples returning home. And they return back and they're excited. They've seen people healed. They've seen demons cast out. They've seen all these amazing things happen, but, but they're exhausted. They're knackered. They've been ministering nonstop. More than that, the disciples come back and people are still now coming to them. They're coming to them and they're coming to Jesus. And it's so much that in verse 30 we read that they don't even have time to eat. Like they can't even stop to have a sneaky tea break or, you know, smoko break or whatever sort of break you want to have to, to, to eat or pause because people are just coming to them over and over again. And so Jesus sends them across the Sea of Galilee in order to rest. He sends them and they travel by boat across the other side of the sea in order that they might find a spot to rest. And we have this hilarious situation where as they travel across, the, the crowds see what they're doing and they run around the sea over across to the other side and meet them. And so they can't rest. They continue to teach and another full day of teaching unfolds. What then uh, happens, as we saw last week, is it's getting late and the, the people are hungry and they're far away, obviously, because they haven't thought or planned about what they're going to do for food as they ran in haste all the way around the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus has compassion on them. 
And he feeds these 5,000 men, or probably about 8,000 people, with five loaves of fish, uh, five loaves of bread and two fish. And the people are amazed. The people are absolutely amazed by what's happened. But as a result, we learn in John's gospel that they begin to plot to take Jesus by force and make him into a revolutionary king, a military king, a king to overthrow the Romans, a king who will get rid of the Romans and lead to God's people being reigned over in God's place. Well, that's where we pick up our story. Uh, why don't you read with me again? And we just, I just want to read those first two opening verses, verse 45 and uh, 46. It says... As a result, Jesus, knowing what they were going to do, verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus puts an end to this revolutionary talk. People are... Uh, uh, are coming to him. They're trying to forcefully uh, make him as king. Jesus knows exactly what they're planning. And so he, it says, made his disciples get into the boat. Literally, he forcefully puts them into the boat. What's this all about? Jesus knows about all this revolutionary talk and he doesn't want his disciples to be affected by it. He's not that sort of king at all. And so he sends his disciples ahead to the east side of the lake. He doesn't want to be, them to be influenced by this crowd that's seeking for him to be some sort of military leader. And then he breaks up the crowd. And he heads up onto the mountainside to pray. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 47. And when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Jesus is now been praying for some time, and the disciples are, are, are rowing away. They're making headway painfully. Literally, the word is, they're being tortured by the strong wind. Their sails are down and they're rowing. The detail Mark gives us is that it's the fourth watch of the night, which is probably, or which is in fact, around between the hours of 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. That means these disciples have been rowing now for about eight hours. Can you imagine rowing for eight hours? This is a disaster. They're already exhausted. They've sought to escape to the other side of the Sea of Galilee just to escape the crowds and found instead a full day of teaching. And now they escape to a a back-breaking row. Eight hours straight of rowing. You can imagine these 12 disciples on this wooden boat. And it's cold. And it's dark. There are gale-force winds lashing against this boat. The roar of the sea is deafening. They are exhausted. They are drenched. They are far from land. And Jesus comes to them walking on the water. How do they respond? Well, it says they don't recognize him. They think it's a ghost and they cry out or literally they scream. They're terrified. You see, moments earlier, they weren't afraid. But they see Jesus, and the result is not relief, but terror. Read with me, verse 50. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished. 
Jesus doesn't leave them terrified for long. He immediately addresses them. And then imagine the incredible scene as the wind stops and they are utterly astounded. They are amazed. The word is something of astonishment and fear at the same time. It's a response to things that are miraculous, extraordinary. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, isn't that a fair response? Like, isn't that a fair uh, way to react to this uh, situation? Isn't amazement the right way to respond to Jesus? Well, Mark wants us to see something here. He wants to see that underneath their response is a profound heart problem. They are amazed, but beneath that, there is a serious heart condition. Marco goes on to tell us, for they hadn't understood the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. There was something Jesus had just been teaching them that they've missed. And that thing is the lesson of the loaves. More than that, their hearts were hard. You see, in the Bible, the heart isn't just about your feelings. It's, it's actually the inner you. The you that, that is everything you think and feel when, when no one else can hear. It's the you on the inside. And the idea of a hard heart is a word picture. It means an inner you that's like a stone. When you squeeze a stone, what happens? Well, nothing happens. And that is what this word picture is about. It's an inner you that is like a rock. It's unresponsive. It's stubborn. That refuses to listen. What we're now going to move to explore are two points. Our two points are the things that the disciples missed the things that the disciples should have seen in Jesus, the things that their hearts were hardened to, and things that I put that for us we can so easily miss as well. Well, what is it about Jesus that they missed? Well, the first thing about Jesus that they missed is divine power. You see, Mark has a simple message that he wants us to see. And that is that Jesus is a king, but more than just a king, he's, he's your maker. He's the one who made you and created you. You might be sitting here and you're not usually a Bible-believing person. And we just want to thank you for coming along. Thanks for joining us this morning. You know, many people spend their whole lives wondering about God and wondering what he's like. Is he real? Can you know him? You know, uh, one of the things that we sometimes do, I sometimes do, is uh, walk around Hornsby and... I chat to lots of different people and I chat to them about faith and God and one of the things that you find here in the Hornsby area is many people, in fact, most people are spiritual. Most people have some sense of, of God, that he's out there, there's something out there. But if you press them to ask them, you know, what is God like? You know, and can you know him? They, they're usually unsure. They have lots of different ideas. Well, Jesus is where the guessing games about God stop. Jesus is where we no longer have to guess. You want to know what God is like. You just need to look at Jesus. And that is exactly what Mark has been on about and what we're going to see this morning. You see, Mark has been showing us right from the beginning that Jesus is God. He's making it crystal clear in the things that he repeatedly is showing us about Jesus. In chapter 1, we saw him... Uh, teaching with this amazing authority. Not teaching in the name of God, but teaching in his own authority, uh, in his own power. We go on from there, and uh, later in chapter 1 and in chapter 3, we see him doing amazing miracles and healing the dead, uh, healing the sick, sorry. We go on from there to chapter 5, and what we saw a few weeks ago is even raising the dead back to life. And more than that, in chapter 2, if we peer back, we see Jesus even forgiving sins. You might not think that's, that's a big deal because, you know, don't we forgive people's sins all the time? But you see, see, forgiving sin, sin is rebelling against God. Sin is saying, God, I, I just want to live my own way. I don't want anything to do with your way. And so sin is ultimately something that only God can forgive. And when Jesus starts forgiving 
people of their sins. He is making a claim, and that claim is that he is God. Mark has been trying to show us time and time again that Jesus is more than just any old king. He is God himself. And similarly, our passage this morning is a divine revelation. It's a revelation about God. And the first clue we see uh, of this purpose and point in our passage is in verse 48. Verse 48 says that he came to them walking on the sea. You see, in the Bible, walking on the sea is not some trick to amaze his disciples. It's, it's more than that. Walking on the sea in this moment is a revelation of God. You see, in the Bible, there is only one person who walks on the sea, and that is God himself. You know, in Job uh, chapter 9, verse 7, uh, Job says of God, Who commands the sun, and it does not rise. Who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens, and trampled the waves of the sea. In this passage, we're, we're getting a revelation of God. And that's the first clue. That Jesus comes to them walking on the waves of the sea. It's not a trick to amaze his disciples. It's a revelation of God himself. But it gets even better. The second clue is in this somewhat puzzling phrase that we, we see in verse 48. Um, it seems almost out of place. It seems almost strange. It says right at the end of verse 48, He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. What? He meant to pass them by. Literally, He desired to pass them by. What does it mean? It seems so unusual. It seems so strange. And yet this is carefully selected words by Mark. He wants us to see something very specific about what Jesus has come to do in this moment. You see, in the Old Testament, he's using words that in the Old Testament refer to a revelation of the glory of God himself. Uh, let me read a passage from, a, a famous passage from Exodus uh, chapter 33, where God desires to re- reveal his glory to Moses. It says in, in verse 18 of Exodus 33, Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. You know, in this scene, God is powerfully revealing his glory to Moses. He is passing him by. And Jesus has comes from up on a, another mountain, not Mount Sinai, but a mountain near the lake. And he also desires to pass by his disciples. He desires in this moment to reveal his glory. Read these uh, verses again from Job chapter 9, verse 7. Who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Can you see so clearly in this text what is happening in this moment. Jesus is doing more than just desiring to walk on water past his disciples. He is revealing his glory. 
He's revealing his divine power. But more than that, the third clue we find is in what Jesus says to his disciples. You know, earlier on in Exodus, God said to Moses, when Moses asked, who should I tell the people about who sent me? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. Then read our passage again. Verse 50. Read what Jesus says. He says three things. He says, take heart. That is, be courageous. And then he says, it is I. Ego eimi. I, I am. I am Yahweh. I am your God. This is divine revelation. This is more than just some miracle. This is a revelation of God himself. Well, what was the disciples' great failing? The great failing of the disciples was that they had no expectation of seeing Jesus. Because they didn't yet understand who he is. They were terrified. They thought they were seeing a ghost. They did not expect to see Jesus coming to them, walking on the water, because they'd missed who he was. And that was the lesson of the loaves. Jesus was feeding the 5,000. He was pointing us to an amazing miracle that God did through Moses. It wasn't Moses who provided the manna in the wilderness, but it was God himself. The miracle was meant to show them divine power. They were meant to see in the miracle God himself. And they shouldn't be surprised that the Son now comes to their rescue. Uh, Mark Strauss, in his commentary, puts it this way. He says, The disciples' problem is not that they are unable to make headway against the wind or that they are not rowing hard enough. It is that they have not learned the lesson of the loaves that God is working through Jesus to accomplish his saving purpose. Disciples of Jesus are not expected to be fearless in every circumstance, but they are expected to learn from God's faithfulness in the past and to grow in their faith for the future. Isn't that true? The disciples weren't expected to be fearless in this situation, but they were expected to see who Jesus was and is in and through his miracles and to have faith for the future towards God. My point is this. Knowing Jesus' divine power, it changes everything. It absolutely changes everything. You know, many people that I talk to out here, they believe that the universe hangs on chance. It's all random chance. Completely random. We are a collection of chemicals. It's random chance. But if it's random chance, there's much to be fearful of. If we are a collection of chemical reactions, the product of incredible random chance, nothing's certain. Nothing at all is certain. Chance governs the future. And the future might be terrible. There is much to be afraid of if all we have is chance. Death, we should be very afraid of. If all is random chance, your life could be cut incredibly short. More than that, you might fail to live it up and you might waste your life. More suffering. You could suffer for your whole life. Your whole life could be miserable with pointless suffering. Poverty, we should be afraid of. You might not enjoy your one shot at life. You might not experience it fully. Kids, your legacy, you you might be forgotten and never ever remembered ever again. There is much to be afraid of if the universe hangs on chance. And yet the Bible teaches there is a God who rules the entire universe, a God who has come to us in the person of Jesus. You know, Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon, in all his glory, was not arranged like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, and what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Jesus says there's a sovereign God who governs all things, even down to the hair on your head. He looks after all things, and so there's nothing to be fearful of. You know, we often worry about things like relationships and respect and money and health and kids and the future. But knowing the divine power of Jesus changes everything. Because he is limitless in power. And he's more than limitless in power. He loves us. And he more than just loves us, but he's committed to our good. And we can expect his help in times of trouble. Well, the disciples failed to see his divine power. More than that, our second point, his divine compassion. You know, in the previous passage, we'd witnessed Jesus' compa- uh, compassion. You know, uh, he was with his disciples and, and, and seeing these people run around to him. In verse 34, it said he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Just like in Psalm 23, he sits them down in pastures and, and he feeds them. And you might look at this situation and you might think, yeah, Brennan, his compassion is long gone. Here are these disciples in the midst of this storm and, and they're rowing, they're, they're fatigued, they're tired and it just seems awfully unfair. I mean, don't these disciples ever get a break? Where is the God of love? Where is the God of compassion? Where is his compassion? Well, we see his compassion twice in this scene. Firstly, we see it in his compassionate plan. The question I want us to think about is... How did the disciples even get here in the first place? Well, we read about it right at the start of our passage in verse 45. It says, Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Immediately, he forced his disciples into the boat. You see, the disciples weren't here in the midst of this storm by chance. This was part of God's sovereign plan. This was part of his plan. Why? Why? Why not spend some chill time debriefing in prayer after everything, Jesus? You know, why not just eat some of those 12 baskets of leftovers and sleep a little? Why this massive ordeal? Why plague these exhausted disciples with eight hours of fruitless Labor. We read about it in verse 48. That same phrase, he meant to pass them by. He desired to pass them by. You see, Jesus had his disciples exactly where he wanted them. His plan in this moment was to teach, his plan was to train them. They still had not seen who he is. They still continue to trust in their own strength. And just like on Sinai with Moses, he desired to pass them by. He desired to reveal to them his glory. It wasn't the disciples' plan to row. They were exhausted. But it was God's plan for them. He had ordained their trial to reveal himself. Why? Verse 52. For they had not understood the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. You know, Paul Tripp 
describes the situation so helpfully this way. He says, God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Did you hear that? It's so helpful. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. He was placing them in the storm. And it was an expression of His care. He was addressing their hard hearts, slowly revealing His glory because He wanted for them to experience the joy of knowing His power and care. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. You know, as Christians, we can sometimes, I know I can, believe that God's main work in our lives is to make us comfortable, is to make us healthy, and is to make us wealthy. And so we, we ask Him in the midst of difficulty, Lord, give me grace. What we really mean is, Lord, take away the pain. But the Bible teaches that God's main work is making us like Jesus. That's His main work. Paul writes in Romans 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined. Why? To be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, God is at work in our lives. And what is He doing? He's making us like His precious Son. It's an amazing privilege. And so this passage is teaching us that as Christians, we always experience His grace. We always experience Him working things together for our good. But what is that good? Being made like Jesus. But sometimes, the grace that He's working in us, it's not comfortable. It's uncomfortable grace. You see, God's compassionate plan was to reveal Himself to His disciples through difficulty. Jesus knew that His disciples hadn't learned the lesson of the loaves. He understood that He is the, or understood that He's the all-sufficient divine King. And so He places them on the sea in love to reveal Himself to them, to teach them that He is the divine King, that He is worthy of their trust. And we see ourselves in these disciples. You know, so, so easy to look at them and think, oh, these foolish disciples, what are they doing? You know, not believing and being surprised by Jesus. But we'd, we'd have been no different in the storm. And look how the Savior is so committed to winning their hearts. He doesn't grow angry, but He comes to them and He reveals Himself. And it's His compassion. But His compassion goes further still. You know, God is more committed to our sanctification than, than we are. He is so committed He's so committed that He sent Christ to come and die. And we see hints of it, even right here in our passage. We see it in that Jesus goes to the mountain to pray alone. You know, Jesus prays alone only three times in all of Mark's gospel. And every time it's significant. Every time it's of great significance. Because in every occasion, Jesus in that moment is tempted to forsake His mission. He's tempted to abandon his mission to the cross and commence his reign in the now. And you see, when Jesus moves to the mountain to pray, he wasn't forgetting his disciples. He was reaffirming his mission to save them. Because he had come to hang on a cross. He had come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He'd come to die in our place on that tree so that simply by trusting in Him, we might know God so fully. We might have God dwell in our hearts. We might have an eternal hope and a future in and through all He's done for us. Well, that was His compassionate plan. And secondly and finally, not just His compassionate plan, but His compassionate gaze. Let me read again the beginning of verse 48. It says, And he saw 
that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. He saw. He saw that they were making headway painfully. The disciples were way out to sea. The wind was blowing. The storm was howling. They were tired. And they could not see the Savior. But the Savior could see them. His gaze never failed. After praying on the mountain for them, he comes to them walking on the seas and says, do not be afraid. And he climbs into their boat and the storm ceases. Now our vision of the Savior is often obscured. We're often distracted by work and anxieties and difficulties. But his vision of us is never obscured. And he comes to us walking on water and he climbs into our boat and our storm ceases. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, There are thoughts of comfort here for all true believers. Wherever they may be or whatever their circumstance, the Lord Jesus sees them, alone or in company, in sickness or in health, by sea or by land, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, the same eye which saw the disciples tossed on the lake is ever looking at us. We are never beyond the reach of his care. Our way is never hidden from him. He knows the path that we take and is still able to help. He may not come to our aid at the time we like best, but he will never allow us to utterly fail. He who walked upon the water never changes. He will always come at the right time to uphold his people. Though he tarry, let us wait patiently. Jesus sees us and will not forsake us. Isn't that beautiful? We are never outside the Savior's gaze. His timing is not ours. We may not like his timing, but he is the God of the fourth watch. He is the God of 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And he is worthy of our trust. Well, the disciples missed his divine compassion, his compassionate plan and his compassionate gaze. My question in closing for us is, are you struggling against a strong headwind? Maybe it's the strong headwind of chronic illness. And you think to yourself, when will it end? Maybe it's the strong headwind of prolonged spiritual dryness. Your faith has lost its sweetness. Maybe it's the strong headwind of a season of young children. Kind of like a, a predictable storm, though you love them and know they're a gift. It's, it's, it's predictable that there's going to be a storm. Maybe it's the headwind of older children walking away from their faith. And you just feel this deep, deep sadness. Maybe it's the strong headwind of an unbelieving spouse and you look at the empty seat next to you and you just continually feel the loss that someone who should be here, who, who should be present in this moment is not. Maybe it's the strong headwind of a broken relationship and just ongoing pain. Maybe it's the strong headwind of difficulty at work, and you just feel like you're treading water, completely exhausted. Whatever your strong headwind, Jesus has for us in this moment a lesson, a lesson that speaks to our situation, and that is that divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. He wants you to see the lesson of the loaves. He wants you to see His divine power. He's your maker. He's your creator. He's your sustainer. He's able to come and help you. He wants you to see His divine compassion, His compassionate plan to work all things for your good, to make you into the image of His Son, His gaze that it's with you. Even though you might not see Him, He continues to see you and He will come to your aid and He will meet you with grace. 
you know, if that's you, just at the end of the service, you know, Charlotte and I, we're, we're going to be around the front. If, if that's you, and, and we'd just love to pray for you and pray that you would experience something of the lesson of the loaves. But in summary, in life we have uh, many memorable lessons. The lesson of the loaves is one such lesson so profound that if if we grasp it, it will change our lives. And that is divine power plus divine compassion is everything you need. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you this morning that you are gracious. And you are worthy of our trust. Lord, so often we struggle to see your divine power. And we struggle to see your divine compassion. And though we struggle to see them, Lord, this morning we want to declare our trust. Our trust that you are everything that we need. That you are working in us. That you are shaping us. That you are making us like your son. And that you will carry us through the storm to the very end. Thank you, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother, for bringing that word. A passage which so many of us could just read straight through and think this is part of the story. And yet has such a beautiful lesson that is so applicable for all of us. Church, why don't we stand and respond by declaring our need for the Lord. This is a new song, but it helps us remember that truly He is all that we need. Truly the divine power and divine compassion equals everything that we need. Let's sing together. Lord, I come and I confess bowing here I find my rest and without you fall apart You're the one that guides my heart Lord, I need you Lord, I need you Oh, I need you Every hour I
Just me. 